Welcome to season two of Gray Maybe, a limited series podcast and social experiment based on this season's topic, the body. My name is Jillian Schmitz. I'm a professional dancer, actor, teacher, author, artist, and cat lover. Through my own personal journey of recovery, I've found that things aren't just black or white, or as simple as yes or no. For me, in my recovery, there has been mostly gray area and a lot of maybes. In most of my stories, you can find the gray maybe. I will be sharing my own process through personal stories, interviews, and hopefully stories from listeners in an effort to help lessen the stigma and shame of disordered eating, eating disorders, and body image. If you'd like to share your story of ED recovery on this podcast, anonymous or otherwise, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using to catch future episodes of Gray Maybe. A note before we begin. The topic of disordered eating, eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and other behavior related to the body may not be difficult for me to share anymore, but it wasn't always this way. I recognize and anticipate the possibility of judgment or disbelief about my experiences, ranging from my own family members to strangers, in addition to the potentiality of losing certain opportunities for publicizing my own experiences. My stories and the stories of others on this podcast are told through the lens of our own experience. The revelation of our process is ours to tell. If you disagree with the views or stories on this podcast, know that we are not speaking on anything other than our own experiences and viewpoints. Take what you like and leave the rest. Nothing expressed or mentioned in this podcast is an endorsement or is meant to be taken as suggestion or advice. It is strictly the sharing of our own experiences and recovery. Any feelings this podcast activates in the listener is for the listener to process and recover from. Any criticism you have based on these experiences and choices are yours, and they are not anyone else's burden to carry. Trigger warning, eating disorders, disordered eating, bulimia, anorexia, fat phobia, suicide, depression, weight loss and gain, body dysmorphia. Okay, today's episode I'm really, really excited about. Um, I'm always saying I'm excited, but I'm really excited for the guest today on the episode. This is a woman who, um, as much as I feel like we actually have a lot in common, we've never worked together. We did not meet on a job. We did not meet in the community of the performing and entertainment business, although it's insane that our paths did not cross at some point in the industry. I met this woman, this wonderful woman, actually through knowing about her recovery because she was very vocal about it. And she is the one who helped me find OA, and that was life-changing for me. And so our guest today is Catherine or Kat Tokes Dyson. And so Kat, will you like give me an intro? And if I mispronounce your name, then reprimand me and tell me how it is as well. <laughs> Jillian, that was so kind. Such kind words. I'm really honored to talk to you today. Um, 
always making space and room for recovery and talking about recovery. It's my favorite thing to talk about. It's the reason that I'm here, honestly. So, um, yeah. So, Kath- uh, Catherine Tokars. Dyson. Tokars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dyson. And now I've got a Dyson on the end. Uh, married for the second time. <laughs> uh, four years ago, uh, my husband. Um, and we actually met in the room. So he is sober as well. Um, he celebrated 10 years last year. So that's awesome. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. And so, yeah, it's crazy that we haven't really worked together. Um, I spent my 20s basically traveling um, on different contracts and Japan, Paris, and then moved to New York and did a handful of Broadway shows in New York. And um, and then I left and moved to LA. I had, I had sort of, I had done, um, I was part of a show that I was doing a workshop for that was going to be at the Amundsen Theater, and I was doing um, Rock of Ages at the time on Broadway, and I had been in the show for over a year, and I had kind of this back injury that didn't stop me from dancing, but didn't make it fun either. A lot of crying and stretching, stretching and crying, and... um, and realized that somebody would be very grateful to have that job and that it's probably time for me to move on. And so moved to L.A. and kind of broke up with theater and musical theater for a while and dancing um, and did more acting and comedy and all of that. Um, And it's funny kind of talking about this because through all of that, like I was a very functional um, addict in a lot of ways. I mean, on the outside, on the inside, you know, it's like every six months I was having like a crisis and didn't want to be here anymore and just struggling, 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 just high highs, low lows. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, it finally I – gosh, I mean, we'll talk about this with recovery, with food and drinking and everything. But for me, my sobriety date is March 15th, 2015. So – you know, God willing, I'll celebrate eight years in March. Um, and yeah, there's, <laughs> I feel like it's been several lifetimes, so many lifetimes. Because uh, yeah, the biggest part now, I'm a mom. I have two little girls, healthy girls. They're one and four years old. And um, I'm actually uh, in grad school to become an MFT, a marriage and family therapist. And then there's just so much that I'm excited about and I want to explore and learn and go into. So kind of setting up a life of service in a way where, you know, my touch point is that I know that change is possible because of my own recovery, which is a really great way to look at the world. Um, yeah. And then, you know, want to pass that on and be of service and help other people get out of that struggle. I'm so glad that you were willing to speak. And I wasn't worried per se, but, you know, people are busy. Life is happening. So I'm so glad I got to grab you. I'm really glad that you talk about sobriety because um, I also, I just had my four-year sobriety from alcohol. I want to say for eating disorder, I want to say it's a little longer because I got that kind of under control before I got the drinking under control. Um. And I'm also glad that you mentioned some of your career stuff because I think, I think it's in, like, I recall seeing photos of you like on social media, 
And looking at these photos and going, I can't believe that woman has had the struggles she's had. Like I couldn't, for some reason, I couldn't look at this picture of gorgeous you, you know, just like being so powerful in, you know, a a picture of you in Rock of Ages, a Broadway show, you know, triple threat, singing, acting, dancing, like just as power and looking at you and being like, there's no way that that person is struggling. And, And not because I didn't believe it, but I just couldn't. It's something about seeing someone's success and believing that their inner success is mirroring their outer success. And it's in, it's it's very weird that I couldn't see that because I also was very much that trajectory. Like I very much on the outside, I think probably, I, I, and maybe I didn't, maybe someone else needs to write in or tell me and be like, I, I think you thought yourself differently. But I feel like I was <laughs> really giving everybody a very like, I'm on time, I'm doing my thing, I am doing my job, I am high achieving. I, you know, from the outside, there was no oh, this person's really can't get it together. They just are a hot mess. Like that was never words that I think anybody associated with me and my profession, but inside and by myself, a nightmare, just a hot mess. So I'm glad you talked about some of your, um, some of your uh, business professionalism, because I think a majority of the people who are going to listen to this are probably in the entertainment industry, dance industry, I'm hoping. And I think one of my biggest hurdles I feel like with doing this season, and I said this to you when I called you and asked, or when you called me back when I asked if you would do this, is that I don't know a lot of dancers that are being honest about this. I don't know a lot of performers that are right in our circle that are being honest about struggling with this kind of stuff. And it, it, the statistics don't line up. Like, there are so many more of us. And so I want to know who those people are and I want them on here. But as far as like dancer, singer, actor, like successful in the business, da, 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 you're the only one I know. That's it. I don't know anybody else. And I feel like I know a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. That's really surprising. I think the thing, I think it's a couple of things. Like one is I, looking back, so a, a big person that was part of my sobriety um, is Jessica Lee Golden. And we did a chorus line together um, in New York on the Broadway. Um, and I replaced Chrissy Whitehead in that show. And she's another incredible woman who's being really Everybody knows open. And she just wrote a show about her own struggles. And she's been performing it. And it's, yeah, incredible. Um She's an incredible woman, an incredible artist. And yeah, so Jessica Lee Golden, she actually just celebrated 10 years of sobriety. And um, and we were in the show together and she was a big part of mine. I called her after her two-year uh, anniversary. They call it in New York. Here it's birthday, but in New York it's mm-hmm. anniversary. Anyway, I called her because I remember looking at her on social media and she was very active and seemed to be laughing a lot and having a lot of fun. And I was at my point where I was like, what do you do if you're not drinking? Because drinking was the big thing for me. But hand in hand, food, um, you know, my stuff was um, I would restrict and then binge and um, and I was bulimic. Um, so I and that started when I was like 14 years old. Um, I remember starting to restrict because I didn't like that my body was changing. It was very uncomfortable as a dancer. 
Um, I look back and my story has been changing so much um, because of school and because of so many things that I'm learning about attachment and, um, you know, uh, childhood experiences and uh, yeah, like it's, it's, there's so much there to uncover because I didn't, I had a pretty even childhood. There was not a lot that happened. However, um, you know, raising two girls now, I'm, there's a lot of reasons why I'm revisiting a lot of the ways that I was, the environment I was in, um, some of the parenting things. I mean, my mom's trauma, um, a lot of the things that get passed down to us that we're not even aware of, um, that definitely influence. It's not the reason I'm an addict at all. We have that too in our family. Um, but so does everyone, like so many people. Yeah. Um, what, but, what's that saying? It's like you're not, it's not your fault what happened to you, but it's your responsibility mm-hmm. in your healing or your recovery. Yeah. Like that. And you know, in the in program, a big saying we have is, is self-knowledge avails us nothing, which is so interesting because I, I love all of our sayings in 12-step programs. Like I think that they have a place and that they're incredible. But I also think as you move forward, you're like, you know, this whole peeling back layers of the onion, you know, being hopefully, you know, uh, eight years sober, I'm different than I was eight years ago, um, for sure. Um, You know, and as we're changing and evolving, different things are coming up and we're taking a look. And obviously as a parent now, I'm looking at things much differently than I did before. Um, but your original question was about talking about it. And the reason I bring up Jessica Lee Golden and we had this conversation, I remember the two of us, and there's another person who's really open about their sobriety in that cast as well. Um, uh, and he, Paul McGill, um, he's really open about his and he's been sober a long time and we were all on the show together and we kind of had this conversation and we're like, wow, like all those babies like just doing what they had to do to show up and get by. And I think of performers, a lot of us are really extreme. A lot of us like to have new experiences. We face fears. We're very like that adrenaline, like, you know, we're, um, there's a lot of, again, I say high highs and low lows because that's typically how it is. Like you have your opening Mm -hmm. night, you have, like it's just a roller coaster of a career to be in. Um, and then if, you know, coping mechanisms, I know a lot of younger dancers and I know they're trying to talk about that a lot more in in school and different programs. And a lot of us that have gone through things, we're trying to talk about how important it is to like have your community, have your friends, have, you know, um, any kind of mindfulness stuff, taking care of your body, doing yoga. Like those are things I didn't come to until years into dancing um, as, as far as yoga and things like that for my body. But I don't know. I think it's kind of that mentality too where you just kind of do what you have to do. And to, I got to be honest about my own experience. I didn't know there was another way. I knew that people, not everyone did what I was doing. But I couldn't function. Like whether I was dancing or not, I couldn't get through the day without thinking about food. It took up so much space in my brain. Um, My brain was just wired differently from years and years of disordered eating. And I, the fear I had around food, the fear that I had if I ate certain things and didn't get rid of it and that my body would change and, you know, these this obsessive, 
the obsession, um, you know, I, I just, I tried so hard. I look back at those journals, you know, I'm like on contract at the Moulin Rouge and I'm so depressed. <laughs> I'm like reading all these books, like trying to find the answer. I'm trying to shame myself out of the behaviors. I'm trying to, you know, if I go three days without vomiting, like I've done it, I'm going to be fine, but I hardly ate. And, you know, so the amount of times I was lightheaded on stage, I was, you know, I would uh, just, I look back and it's just so sad to me because I think the hard thing with eating disorders, it's like there are so many factors um, in that, that are interwoven in recovery, right? Like it's not just food. It's not what you're picking up. It's about the food has nothing to do with food. It's not about your body, even though all you do is obsess over your body. It's not even about that. Like, we think we can control that. Um, You know, it's not about – it's like there are so many factors at play. Um, Anyway. I I try to always say when talking about eating disorders – that eating disorders live in the mind, they don't live in the body. And it is not about, and, and I mean, just like you said, it's not about the food. This is a coping mechanism for so much greater, mm-hmm. you know, dis-ease, you know, um, so much greater discomfort. Um, uh, because one, and I bring this show up all the time, is if anybody's seen the show Physical mm-hmm. on Apple TV, her inside monologue is for me, uh, just a absolute nailed it 100%. That is a monologue. That is a monologue that a lot of us who struggle with this really relate to, if we're being honest. I mean, it was, I was shocked at how on the nose that monologue was. And when you hear it, it's so shocking. Mm -hmm. But when it's in your own voice in your own head, it's just like the normal record that's played every day. And you don't realize that that's not what it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because when I saw that, I was so uncomfortable. Um, and I and obviously because it hit home, right? Like the mm-hmm. person – I always used to say with notes and stuff, like you can tell me anything. You can be horrible to me because I'm always the worst at myself. And you talk about that inner monologue. And the only thing – I used to say even as a kid, like a teenager, right? Like I had this running thing. Like I was so mean to myself all the time. The only thing that quieted it was when I was dancing – Um, or when I was eating, when I was checking out with food that, that shut it off when I was dancing. Cause your brain has to be like fully involved in what you're doing or performing. You've got to be totally present. And then the third one was when I was with a boy I liked and we were like making out, it usually shut off then, which is like a recipe for me. It's like, I went from food to sex, to relationships, to drinking. Like I, Mm -hmm. anything can fill that void and I can do anything addictively and compulsively for sure. Um, Yep. (laughs) I relate. I relate to all that. And the first two episodes are just me kind of qualifying, telling my experience. And um, if you do listen to them, I'm interested to, to know how many times you're going check, Check, mm-hmm. check. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you, and you mentioned a little bit the age of 14, but do you remember when it began for you or are there things, especially now that you're kind of taking inventory in this schooling of things that you can now see? Because when I think back, I'm like, oh, it started here. But then if I really think about it, I'm like, but I also remember this and I remember this and I remember that. And you start looking at 
things adults had said, things you had witnessed, things, you know, that just started to kind of, like you said, interwoven. It's, it, it is like interweaving, like every stitch is a part of it. It's not just like, oh, this one thing and that's what, and that's why, you know, there's so many different uh, interweavings of it. But is there, a, a t- are there things that you can remember, like some of the earliest signs or symptoms of, of this dis-ease or the, you know, eating disorder, body dysmorphia, disordered eating, et cetera? Well, it's funny because I, um, I never, I never looked that different. Like there was never anything about my weight. That was never a topic of conversation. Like I was a, I don't know, like I was always really active and it wasn't something I really thought about. Nobody ever said anything to me. Nobody said like, uh, anything, um, I was a cheerleader for like two years. So I would think back, I think um, I was like the tallest one. I went to this uh, high school that was, it was junior high and high school, it was grade six to 12. And um, they lost a bunch of seniors when I was going into eighth grade. So I was 13. I just turned 14, I think. And I auditioned or tried out or whatever. Yeah, that would be like eighth, eighth to ninth grade right in there. Yeah. So I auditioned for like the varsity or whatever, squad. And I, there was three of us that were in eighth grade that were put on the varsity squad. And um, to me, I was just like, yes, like I won. You know, I was like so competitive and such an asshole. I'm an adult. I'm so I'm <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I, I was also the tallest because I was like 5'8 at 12. Um, and I look back at that too and the way that I was treated, like people often thought I was older and I was really embarrassed about that a lot of times because I wasn't ready for that. I remember when I did get my period like at 12, I was really upset because I was like, oh no, like I'm not a kid anymore. I was like, it was scary to me and it was like, and I remember, yeah, a lot of people thought I was older and I think I always played that off, but I was, it was all very uncomfortable. I think for a lot of girls, it happened so quickly and we're not really emotionally, we're not there yet. Like there's a lot of attention all of a sudden you get. And I remember that. And I remember being the tallest one and wanting to feel smaller because I felt like the people that were really good at it were tiny and compact and they were like the flyers and I was in the back. Um, and so there, I want that- to stop put pause on one second because this is like something that I keep hearing coming up and that keeps coming up for me is this desire to be small. Mm. And I don't know what that is. Like, I mean, obviously if we want to look at like fat phobia and like taking up room, I get it. Like if you're, if that is, if you're fat phobic, if that is a fear, if that's the deal, I get it. But there over and over again, there is with a lot of women, I feel like this, this need or this desire to be small to not take up a lot of space and to shrink and Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is I don't know if it's you know Kate Moss I don't know if it's you know some of us had that as a as -hmm. a thing you know like I don't know if it's a societal thing like or what an ideal woman should be or what that sizing should be or just and as someone who's a self-proclaimed feminist it's the antithesis of where I want to go I don't want young women to stay small. I don't want them to not take up space in their body, in their voice, in their career, in their anything. And when I think about what it is, what it means in the society to take up space with your body, right? To have like an unruly body and how much of a rebel or rebellious act that is, I love it. But for some reason, it really like butts heads with my 
my disorder in this moment. I'm glad you said that. I relate to that. I didn't want to take you off your trajectory of, of answering this, but I I like got to highlight it because there that is there's something in it there that is just over and over again I hear or I see. Okay, so. I will say I think that has changed. I think it's different cultural shifts because I have these younger cousins who are like in their – in college, like one – yeah, and they are like – the Zoomers. Tall, beautiful, curvy, and just like proud. Um, and so I do think there's these different cultural shifts. And I think for 80s, 90s, yeah, it was definitely that era. And, and it's still there, you know, the thinness for sure. Um, but I also, I you know, I say no one ever said anything to me. I talk about the cheerleading thing. I was tall, blah, 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 blah. I will say I had messages left and right that women should be petite. Um, and I don't want to, cause something I'm looking at a lot again is as a mom, as a parent. So be, being careful, what am, what am I saying out loud? What kind of messages am I giving my daughter? Right? Like am I, both my daughters, am I commenting on my body and I, am I ruining, is my mood ruined because of like the way that I'm looking like, because I still have a lot of stuff like for sure, you know, and trying to deal with it as it comes up. But I have, you know, a lot of um, sort of ways that I feel comfortable, I guess. Um, and, you know, talk about it in a little bit. But I um, definitely all kinds of messages. And especially as a dancer, you know, I looked around and a big thing was, you know, I go to Tremaine Dance Convention, right? Or go to New York and see these dancers. And I know that at the time, like there are, girls my age who were homeschooled because they were dancing 25 hours a week, I was not that. I was in a public school. I played sports. I was cheerleading. You know, I look back at our schedules. I'm like, I don't understand how I did this. It was like two to five was like practice or whatever. And then I would go to dance like six to nine. And then I would go do home. Like, how do you do these things? I don't understand. But um, but still, I wasn't. You know that that's still kind of these kids' schedules. Like the kids I teach, they still have that schedule all the time and people have the audacity to call these kids lazy right like people have the audacity to call these kids lazy i'm like um this that's no, not it that is crazy. not it not it anyways but so, I, yeah so you were that one of those kids doing i, all those I things. was doing all those things but i wasn't in training like as a dancer does that make sense like i took like yeah. you know we would you had take a life you had a yeah. normal upbringing you had a life you weren't you know nadia komanichi you know training not at under all Russian. and i remember yeah. hearing that and being like oh my god well i should probably wake up early and do this and i didn't yeah so i was comparing like my body who was it was like a normal teenage girl who was active but not like olympic or whatever not in that kind of training so i just wanted to look different i wanted to look like i was training like that and that was my justification of like okay well then you need to eat less and of course i was starving and so then i would binge you know at night and then i hated myself and then of course that inner monologue i was so mean and so terrible and and yeah, I think I watched a TV movie and I found out, oh, I'm like, I should try that. <laughs> um, and so, and you know, my parents, to say this, my parents found out, I had written it in a journal. My mom found it. It was like two or three months after I started doing this. And so I saw doctors, I saw my primary, I had I lost a little bit of weight and I saw my primary care doctor. They took me to a nutritionist. I saw a therapist. We went to family therapy. They literally did everything you're supposed to do. And I kind of just lied my way through um, and just like did what I had to do. And so I look back and, you know, my 
parents, my poor parents who literally, yeah, they did everything that they could that you say that you're supposed to do. Um, and I mean, I have a lot to say about all of it and what I think would be most helpful. But again, I look back now and I can really see that it wasn't really all about that, right? Like Mm -hmm. I was definitely a product of the 90s. You know, we talk about girls being a good girl and not feeling ever having any anger and not really having a voice ever, not being listened to, not, Mm -hmm. not learning how to process feelings, having zero coping mechanisms other than like go run or, which again is a, I guess a good thing, but there was no talk about breathing or meditation or, or just what it, what your body's going through when you're having these feelings or I don't know, like all the things we're striving to understand more about ourselves as adults and trying to Mm -hmm. literally just feel more at peace and happier Mm -hmm. and, and trying to feel better in our own skin and in our bodies and on this planet because there's so much to worry about. So I just, yeah, I look back and I can see very much that it was also for sure a way for me to just feel in control and feel like I could set my eyes on something and accomplish a goal and, you know, yeah. Anyway. I relate to a lot of that. I talked a lot about in my first kind of stories how I did not know how to process the big feelings I was having. And um, as much as I didn't want to be a sensitive person and I still don't enjoy being a sensitive person. Um, I had no blueprint on how to deal with those big feelings and it wasn't anybody's fault around me because they didn't know either. Mm -hmm, Exactly. I look at them and I was like, wow, look at that. Like y'all don't, don't know either. How would you know to do something that you don't like? How do you know to teach something that you don't know? So I see it. And I think that that's, uh, if I had a hope for the next few generations, it's that, you know, um, my, the mindfulness, the ability to emotionally regulate or to notice dysregulation, to have some tools to work through it. Like just, I think that is worth its weight in gold, um, that kind of stuff. Um, so is there, can you, can you think of, or would you say, did you have like a rock bot, what we would call a rock bottom or a situation or a moment that you really realized that, uh, okay, I, I need help and you're ready to take those kind of first steps? I mean, so many, um, <laughs> but <laughs> you had so many, so many rock bottoms. They were really just glass ceilings. They just kept busting through and busting through and busting through. I mean, yeah. Like, you know, you have these little things set up for yourself often of like, I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to, you know, if it gets in the way of this, like, I don't know, just like little things that you're these little lines you might cross. So for me, I, in New York, doing a chorus line, I definitely at that time I was like, even when I got that job, I had been traveling doing Wicked. I was like a universal swing for Wicked. And I was I was like, I can't be bouncing around with suitcases anymore. I want to stay in New York. I had a boyfriend in New York. I just, I wanted to be there. And so then I got a chorus line. So I'm, I remember you know, then I have this incredible job. I'm here. I'm with my boyfriend and I'm still hurting myself. Like I would have these moments where I was like, but wait, it was supposed to change when it was supposed to get easier when I finally, whatever. Um, 
And I think that that's such a hard part for a lot of us, right? I mean, I was talking to my husband last night about how we have the privilege in recovery in Los Angeles or in New York or in these big cities, but in my experience of seeing these incredible people who are so talented and creative and sensitive and dynamic live lives in recovery. And so when I think of an addict, I think of my sponsor, who I love so much, who's one of the most reliable people I've ever met, the most beautiful, kind-hearted people. And many people don't have that picture, right? So I think of recovery. I think of what could be. Um, Anyway, so bottom. In New York, yeah, that was – and that was when I was first introduced. I was brought to an OA meeting by my boyfriend – um, yeah. And, uh, cause I finally told, now, was he in, was he in the programs at all? He just was no. like, you have a problem. He's a comedian. Go. Um, oh, okay. and nope, not at all. He definitely had stuff in his family, but no, I think he did a little research or something. I'll never forget when I walked in at my first OA meeting, he came with me. I sobbed the whole time. I heard this woman sharing who had a lot of light behind her eyes and, seemed very alive and very content and peaceful. And the stuff she was sharing, I was like, <gasps> I was like, don't say that out loud. I can't believe you're saying this out loud. She was sharing about behaviors. She was sharing about how she hated herself. She was sharing like how it used to be. And I was like, I know. And I'm sitting there like sobbing. <laughs> and the thing about all these OA meetings is people talk about like um, different body stuff. And I'd be in the meetings and – uh, or eventually, you know, I was like, I want to lead this meeting, right? Like I, I was in the point where I had like a year of recovery and I was able to lead some meetings and, um, or secretary and, or speak. And I, you know, then I'd have to go put on my leotard and tights and go on stage. And I remember in recovery, that was hard because inevitably, like, you know, I had a therapist say to me one time, she said, would you rather be happy or would you rather be thin? And of course I was like, oh, uh, I'd like to be thin and also happy. Wait, she didn't say it that way. She said, would you rather be happy and have full relate, have a full life with relationships, like beautiful, full relationships? Um, Because the happy, that to me is such a fleeting, I don't know what that is, but sort of live this like, uh, you know, have these full relationships. And I was like, no, 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 I want them both at the same time. And I think, you know, a lot of people say this with eating disorders where they talk about when they're at their thinnest, right, different times, at their sickest, how they were the most miserable, right? Yes. The most narrow, the most like couldn't yeah. go anywhere, could only do yeah. certain things, hated themselves, felt frail, passing out, like all these things. And I, I'm that person as well when I look back at different, you know, times in my life. So I would say – um, Yeah, on my knees. The two times I can think of is when I entered OA. And then when I got sober, I finally, I was, um, I realized the drinking, I I couldn't believe it got to that point. I knew I was using it, but I thought I could manage it. And I remember my family was in town and I I was drunk at like six o'clock on a Friday. I don't remember what happened. And I would fall a lot. And, you know, it was a lot of physical injuries and um, it was just a matter of time, I feel like. And more than that, it was just the mental, you know, you talk about this and with food and drink, I think you can go downhill quicker with drinking. Um, Mm -hmm. and definitely with any kind of substances, I think, you know, depending on what that is, you know, that can really take you out quick. 
But um, it's a pretty dangerous combo. It's really dangerous. And so I just remember going, um, like, this is it. I either have to go to rehab or I need to go to meetings every day, all day, any free time. Like, I have to commit to myself because this, is, this isn't this is a question anymore. And um and yeah, I remember I spent the weekend in bed. I, I would I would all I would recommend a detox if anyone is in that position and feels that it's at that point because I do know people can have seizures and I would definitely recommend medical care if somebody is if that's their situation. Um, but uh, I called people I knew that were in the program. One person I saw get sober, and I called him, and um, and then I showed up, and I just kept showing up. So yeah. I love I love that you talked about, you know, the skinny versus a full, you know, like a big mm. full life or would you rather be skinny, that kind of thing. And I, when I hear that question, I'm like, well, I, obviously both. And, yeah. and like you, and also, it, like I can 100% verify that my thinnest, I was the most emotionally disturbed, but at the same time, still in my head to this day, there is a little voice or a big voice that's like, if you're thin, you will be happy. And and I know that not to be true. And it's still so hard because it is still there. There's still just like this weird old neurological pattern that is like, oh, you know, do you want to be thin or happy? Well, thin because then I'll be happy. And that is so not like I know for a fact that that's not it. But for some reason, it's like it's like a glitch in mm. the computer and it's like a bug that I can't seem to quite get rid of. And I logically, I can look at it now and be like, wow, that's really not, not only is it not true, but it's not, um, that's, that's not even me. But um, I'm glad that you brought that up. Do you remember, you talked a little bit about your early recovery. Um, is there anything that you, rec- that you can recall that that kind of looked like? I know you said you kind of called people and stuff like that. Was there certain things that you, because I know from being in OA, there's not a ton of like, this is what you do. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's the 12 steps like an AA. Yes, you're re- you're recommended to get a sponsor. Yes, you know, you're supposed to go to meetings, all of those things. But because OA is so different and because unlike alcohol, the, the, the thing about AA is just don't drink. Mm-hmm. Just don't drink. Just don't drink. It's very black and white for people that really like black and white thinking. There is like that can be kind of appealing when it comes to food because it's something we have to do to live as well as like sex and love is also a really dicey area. How, like, do you recall how you navigated, you know, some of that? Cause I can recall in my early, um, recovery, some things that I had to kind of commit to, which were really difficult to do, right? That's part of the recovery. And then just like you have to go to Lululemon, pick out a pair of, um, of, jazz pants or, you know, yoga tights. And for some reason, the Lululemon lighting and mirror situation has got to be the absolute worst. If it wasn't (laughs) bad enough that they're charging $300 for leggings, I would hope, you know, I hope someone from Lululemon is listening to this, like invest in your lighting and your, and your mirror angles and your sales will go up. Like, I really don't know how I can't drive this home enough. Those, the mirrors and the lighting in there did me in. And it took me days to get over it. Yeah. And so I remember those moments where it's like being in the careers that we're in, it was, it felt tenfold to try to dig out of this hole. And I didn't know if you had some of those, after you talk, I'm going to talk about some of mine just in case people are kind of in that boat and they're kind of like trying to figure out some things. Yeah. Yeah. To start that process. For sure. I mean, I think with OA, I, I think what's so interesting about it is the community, the accountability 
So, you know, yes, you're sitting in a room. I remember there was this 100 pounders meeting. And so this is for, uh, yeah, uh, people that have lost over 100 pounds. Those are the people that would speak. And I was shocked that I had so much in common with everybody. So it's like, yes, all of our disordered eating might look slightly different. I mean, also the stories I heard were so creative in their masochism (laughs) and so like unbelievable that like you can't write it. Like I remember just certain one woman had mirrors mirrors put up all over her New York apartment uh, so that she thought if she saw herself eating, she would stop. The whole wall, like all this mental image, I was like, wow, this is in the different characters that you meet and the ages, like this is not socioeconomic status. Like it's anyone with addiction in general, but with eating, right? So Mm -hmm. I would say in early recovery, you know, things that I learned from program is, you know, uh, having a sponsor was accountability. So um, being able to check in with somebody like every day, putting your recovery first somehow every day. Um, uh, but a big thing at first, it's definitely like this sort of, for me at least, it was hard. It's gray. So as a bulimic, like I don't want to restrict and I don't want to overeat. It has to be in the middle and I don't want something that's too restrictive. I think that's the biggest thing people do is like, I'm going to, you know, a lot of like clean eating, I say in quotes. And it's like, that's the problem. That's what I had been hashtag trying. Hashtag orth- orthorexia. Right. Yeah, hashtag look that up. Look that up. Yeah. Orthorexia, like this obsession with with health. And um, yeah, so for me, what did that look like? Like I was trying to find this middle ground of, um, okay, I knew for myself sugar was an issue that backstage, you know, people would have candy or sugar. And once I started, it was like a thing went off in my brain. Like it was a magnet. I knew if there were cookies in the theater, I knew if there was candy and you know, they're out for everybody because people just want a little boost or whatever. Normal people could have one cookie and that's fine. I couldn't have one cookie. I would think about the cookie, the whole show. I would say, when can I have the cookie? Can I have the cookie? I don't want to finish the cookie. Oh, I'm going to have the, let me have two. There's so much more there. Like who's going to eat them? I'll take them home. And then, you know, so I realized for me, just for a short time, I was going to no candy, like no candy or sweets. Um, If it was like in the theater, uh, that was like a big one to be able to say, just right now, I'm not going to open that floodgate for myself because I realized Mm -hmm. sugar is a thing. Um, I am addicted to sugar because I was often using sugar as a quick fix because I wasn't even eating enough. So that was a big one to say, okay, I'm not going to get my nutrition from that. Um, I had a list of red, yellow, uh, green foods. That was something that I did of like the green was foods that felt comfortable. I felt comfortable eating them. Yellow was like sometimes, um, you know, maybe one or once or twice a week, whatever. And red was like, oh my God, absolutely not. The idea, I think back to this now, and I just have to share that I'm like, everything's green. Everything's green for me now. Like I am not, I just, it's, it's interesting to think back. Um, there's nothing off limits. Cause I know for myself, uh, and even in early recovery, it was a loose, loose situation. Cause I think for myself where I went was that I had to be able to allow myself, let's say like a bite or whatever I wanted, a little bit of dessert, some sugar if I wanted. And that's where I live now. Recovery to me is uh, is listening to my body and treating my body with care and respect 
and eating the food that I need to be a person and get through the day and be the mom I want to be and the the sister I want to be and the the wife I want to be. And, you know, it's fuel to live the life I want to live. That's put food in its rightful place. That's the goal of recovery for me. Um, but in early recovery, I did that red, yellow, green list. I, I was accountable with calling my sponsor. Um, I would often, even with meals, three meals, two snacks, got to sit down and eat them, put them on a plate because I would often just snack, right? So it was like three meals. Like, what do these meals look like? Let's make sure I'm eating enough. So if you need to work with a nutritionist or something like that, but a big thing is like not restricting because if you restrict, you will be hungry and then you can't make good decisions. Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. If you're feeling any of those things, you're not going to make great decisions. So it was making sure I'm getting enough food. Even if like I'm, I've got all that food on the plate and like I'm full. And I don't want to, you know, that's okay. You don't have to eat the last couple bites, whatever. Put a, put that food on the plate. I'm so glad that you talked about all of the, the red, green, and yellow foods because I also did that early mm-hmm. in recovery. And for me, I had to go with all green foods because my situation was I restricted everything. I rest- I would never let myself have sugar. I would never let myself have fast food. I would never, I would never, I would never. And I would keep getting so restrictive and smaller so that I always had an excuse why I couldn't eat. Well, I can't eat that because that's that's candy. That's not actually food. Well, I can't eat that because that's fast food. It's very terrible for you. Oh, and I can't, I can't, which all of it, it's just calories in, calories out. Just, you know, if anybody is relating to what I just said, like, it, it, yes, there are, you know, more healthy and less, but it's all just like me restricting was not healthy. Although I was under the guise that I was got really orthorexic in my head in the way of like, if it's not organic, I better not eat. It's better off if I just don't eat than eat something that's not good for me. Now, can I ask you a question? When you were in early recovery and you were maybe sitting down and you had something that was on that was uncomfortable. So what did that feel like as you're eating it? Because I can remember what it felt like for me and I'm curious for you. What did you do about that? And I do recall exactly what you're asking about. And I remember it feeling like I was in a ring and I was losing. Every time I made a decision counter to what I wanted to do. So for instance, eating a a food that would typically previous to recovery be a red food, right? Candy, dessert, um, just something fried or something that was fast, quote unquote, fast food or not organic. I felt like I was losing, even though that was a, a step in recovery. It was almost like my eating disorder and I versus recovery. And it felt every day when I would make those choices, like I was taking hits to the face. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was losing every time. And and when I would do it, the anxiety of doing that either during or after was pretty intense. And although I only had one moment growing up where I felt the uh, compulsion to throw up and I wasn't able to, so I kind of ditched that behavior never to return. But it wasn't until in recovery when I would overeat, which is something that happens sometimes because my cues are so messed up. I had no idea how much food I actually should be eating or how much food I actually required because I had messed up all of my cues so significantly. I could not tell the difference between hunger and anxiety. So if I was hungry, it felt like anxiety. And if I was anxious, it felt like hunger. And if I was starving, I would feel anxious, but that not eating would fuel my anxiety. And then I would be anxious and not eat. And then anxious is not. So it was like this weird spiral. 
but I couldn't tell. And sometimes when I would overeat, which I would have to remind myself, sometimes that happens. Sometimes you're going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to feel overly full or full, and that's an uncomfortable feeling. And in that moment, in a lot of those moments, I would be like, I want to puke. Like I want, and not the, not the puke feeling of I'm so full. I've done this to myself, but the get it out feeling. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a slightly different from me anyways. There's the feeling of like, oh man, I overdid it. I'm uncomfortable. And then there is the shame and the guilt in it that is like, I have to get rid of this. Like the anxiety is overwhelming. And I would just have to sit with that and be kind of miserable for a couple minutes and know that it was going to pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can really so, relate. Yeah. There was, I'm glad you brought the red, green, blue, or red, green, yellow, because that was a thing. And for me, it was, I had to be green with everything, which was really hard for me. I was not, I told myself I was not allowed to skip meals. Mm -hmm. So two to three meals, because I'm not a great breakfast person. I try my best, but I also try to be um, really gentle with myself uh, because that kind of really stringent, strict black and white, you're terrible, you fucked up is never great for me. And I'm trying to change that. So I am really gentle with myself. And I do like no skipping meals was a thing for me, which was hard to do because it cost more money. Mm-hmm. Like talk about money, Rexia, which is a thing. Like I didn't want to spend money on food and I would skip meals so I didn't have to spend money on food. Even if I had money, it didn't matter. It wasn't, it was another way to do that. So it costs more. It's more time consuming. I didn't have to sit there and chew. It took time out of my day. I would have to plan it. Like these are all things that people who, I I don't want to say normal, but people who can take care of themselves, Mm -hmm. which for some reason I didn't learn or implement at some place. Like I very much have to kind of treat myself like a baby. Like it's time for breakfast. Baby hasn't had breakfast. Baby needs lunch. Like what are you going to have for lunch? Like it is kind of a little ridiculous, but that's kind of how I have to see it since I will just not. I will just not do that for myself. And then I also had to not allow myself to view food as being the potentiality of toxic so I had to kind of like really reframe my my brain and thinking that eating this thing this one time right now is not going to give you cancer. Eating this thing this one time right now is not going to poison your organic blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't doing a great job with this. Like I was not like doing a fantastic job in these diets. These were all like just to cause my own torture. This was all just to keep me tortured. And then my other sobriety thing or abstinence thing in the OA program was that I had to eat wherever I was at. Meaning if I was at a restaurant, I had to eat at that restaurant. I couldn't say there's nothing here I want. I'll get something later Mm -hmm. or be like, I need to look somewhere else to buy myself time. Or I'm just going to get something like a drink at Starbucks. So I, I was, I had to find something there I could eat. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that was really hard. And I would sit and stare at a menu for so long. I would get really, um, frustrated and I would get really uh, self-conscious and then I would start to like feel really bad about myself and feel like this is so ridiculous. Why can't I find something? Or I would be like, this place is terrible. Why can't they have anything? I can't, I can't eat any of this. And then I was like, no, that's not what we're doing anymore. There is no red. So pick something because you're going to eat here. It was like, like you're like a kid, pick your, pick your hard. You're going to eat here. So what of these things do you want to eat? That's your choice. Your choice is not eat or not. Your choice is what of these things. And then it was just like over and over again is you still have to eat. Uh, If you're upset, you still have to eat. If someone's in the hospital, you still have to eat. If there's a worldwide pandemic, you still have to eat. If someone's broken your heart, you still have to eat. If you didn't get the job, you still have to eat. If you got the job, 
you still have to eat. Mm -hmm. And that's what I have to always tell myself because if I'm left to my own devices, I'm going to try to skip it. And for no other reason than I think it's going to do some kind of control, make me feel like I have some, and it's it's a fallacy and it's elusive. You brought um, up, there's just a couple, you brought up a couple points and just in early recovery, that ability to sit in the discomfort, whether it's emotional, whether it's actual physical, having food in your stomach that you don't want there. Because I know in my experience with, you know, obviously being, you know, with bulimia is that what you were saying, like I, you know, there were things that I would do where I knew I was getting rid of it. So the things that I felt okay, you know, I thought I had all this control about, I mean, I don't know, it's just viscerally bringing back the, the anxiety and the feelings and like, gosh, like the mental gymnastics that you have to go through on a daily basis to keep up your addiction and to God, the emotions. And it's just so exhausting and it's so much work and it's so gosh, it's like the suffering like that you cannot, you know, alcohol shuts off your brain, which why is why for me later it, it worked better. Um, the food, oif, like, oh my gosh, it's just, just talking about that in early recovery, that ability to sit in the discomfort, the ability to, like you said, like all my hunger cues totally messed up. So I think this is what I'm supposed to be eating and put this on a plate and okay, yes. And trust, 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 trust. Like that's why, you know, we're not, we haven't talked about it one time today, but the whole OA thing and 12 step thing, they talk a lot about a spiritual solution and you're sitting there going, Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Like what? But when you're eating, when things feel uncomfortable, when you're trusting in this new way of doing something and you don't have evidence in your brain or in your body or in your heart that that's the right way, it feels every part of you makes it feel like it's wrong, right? Like you're being mm-hmm. bad and it's wrong and mm-hmm. and you're it feels like you're disgust, like there's so many, you want to crawl out of your skin, like all of those feelings. And that is where for me, that beauty of connection, that beauty of reaching out and having a friend say, I hear you, take a breath, I can sit with you, you're going to be okay. This is, mm-hmm. I remember having to make the stakes so high, like life and death. This meal is life and death. You need to eat this meal and you need to sit in the discomfort and just love yourself through it and just be kind to yourself. And in early recovery, like I felt like I was underwater. It was so, it was the most difficult. I was like, I'm a soldier in a battle. This is the hardest thing I'm ever going to have to do. And there is hope on the other side. And we're both here to tell you if you're struggling that there is so much hope on the other side, that there's so much Mm -hmm. light, there's so much peace. Uh, It doesn't have to be like that. That's all I want to say. Yeah. And I want to tag team on what you said about connection and the spiritual part of the program. Um, because it is very loosely based in, you know, there's no one religion, there's no one belief, everything is very, you find your own way. But there is a saying that says, um, the opposite of addiction is connection. And I do think that that is like 100%. If that's a connection with a God thing, if that's a connection with the universal energy thing, if that's, uh, if that's the, uh, what do they call the, the, um, the group conscience group like conscience. the, the yep. yeah the group conscience of the group like the consciousness of the group yeah. like oh you can hear hear a spiritual message through the group and through other people speaking mm-hmm. so whatever that is that connection is is big time and i i feel like every time someone's honest about this kind of stuff it creates that opportunity for connection mm-hmm. and it it sheds a little bit more light on the darkness and you can't ever kind of go back into that full fully dark place again. Yeah. I mean, it keeps Um, you so isolated, right? Like that's inevitably, we talk about the most thin times. It's like, yeah, you're eating at home alone or you're not eating at all or you're separate from, you're 
you're constantly pushing others. I didn't know how to be social. Like I didn't know and I, I couldn't. Like I, yeah, there's so much, so much. I agree with all that. Um, I think you talked a little bit about your relationship today um, with food and your body kind of more, you know, about this is just food in its rightful place. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. I mean, the other thing I want to touch on, you know, you talked about uh, just for me going through pregnancy and um, and being a mom. So one thing, you know, I got uh, was something I didn't know if I wanted was to have children, right, at some point. And I felt like I had destroyed my body so much um, in different ways with bulimia and with alcohol. And just I was I was shocked. I've never been pregnant before. That's not part of my story. And I really don't know how <laughs> um, that that wasn't. Yeah, that was my experience. So I didn't know if I could. And um I will say, you know, I'll just share this because I know there's a lot of women my age. I'm 40. And um, there's a lot of a lot of my friends that, you know, in the business that wait to get pregnant. And it's not um, it's not always easy. And I just for myself, I it was pretty easy. Um, And I just say that because, you know, I don't know. It's this is my experience. And um, I did a job with a woman who was a, a Somebody, I'm sure you've worked with her. Actually, she did a documentary called "Pushing Motherhood" about dancers, and um, and she had a baby at 52, I believe. Um, but she also had struggled with fertility before that, so you didn't hear about the heartbreak prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, so we ended up. I was 35, um, and. Yeah, I also knew I'm in recovery. I'm in recovery with food. Like this is going to be something I need to take care of myself through. Um, and so I did. I got pregnant. We got pregnant pretty much on that that first try, which is incredible. Um, and yeah, and just accepting my body. You know, it wasn't always super comfortable, but it was also incredible and amazing and knowing that this was just a temporary experience and I'm creating life and all of these things. I definitely, I was going to meetings at the time, to OA meetings and AA meetings, um, you know, and listening to my body and eating what I, you know, thought was helpful and, um, Yeah. And then giving birth and that, you know, I definitely afterwards with my first sort of, you know, there's a lot of unpredictability, like what's my body, what's going to happen afterwards. I mean, I felt like a powerhouse, like I felt like a lot of women experience feeling incredibly powerful and definitely, I mean, our bodies are uh, incredible. Um, It's a miracle. And uh, I will say it's just crazy because it wasn't, I wasn't white knuckling like I used to do in my um, disorder. Like I definitely, I was trying to listen to my body through it and recovery. You know, I had two positive experiences and I, it's crazy because I wasn't really doing much as far as working out and my body kind of just went back to what it, you know, and some people hear this and they're like, Fuck you. <laughs> that's a, yeah. that's not yeah. everyone's experience. <laughs> but the reason I think it's important to share, because I do think our bodies sort of live in a genetic uh, area, right? Like if you're listening to your body, it's going to just be a certain way. Um, I say that. I'm also hyper aware and I'm pretty um, vain. 
So, you know, but I'm not doing what I used to do as far as like working out. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm more just trying to pick things, trying to listen and fuel my body how it needs to be fueled with food. But yeah, so through pregnancies, these two pregnancies, I just, things just fall off easier off my shoulders in general. Like I just, the obsessions, what's going on in my brain is so different prior to having kids. It's all the tropes that they say, you know, we have two little ones and you're trying to keep them alive. And, you know, my, I, I definitely still am very vain in certain ways, like I feel comfortable a certain way. I want to feel strong. Um, I'm shocked at, you know, if I could talk to myself 10 years ago and say, hey, just lay off and do what everyone's telling you to do and just, you know, in recovery, right? Like your body will be what it is. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just, it's shocking to me that my whole life throughout all these things, I've never looked that different. Like, yes, give or take 10 pounds, but the suffering involved with an eating disorder is just unparalleled. And like, I just feel so free now because to me, you know, the opposite of that prison is freedom. And so in regards to food, you know, I still have a lot of work to do to continue with different things that have come up emotionally as a mom and sort of, you know, processing anger, frustration, or these certain things that come up because ultimately kids you can't control them and like that's what I felt in pregnancy too this ultimate loss of powerlessness but I had practice because of recovery so I will say like I mean that's so much of this letting go uh trusting and listening to people that know more than you and you know in recovery and just it's possible and so yeah as a mom you know my job with my body is to be able to be fit to be their mom and run around and feel good about my body and to feel like a sexy, you know, sensual being, woman at, you know, in this next decade of life. Like that's really important to me to feel comfortable in my skin and, you know, um, what I do to get there will wax and wane and change with whatever physical stuff I'm able to do. But boy, like my outlook is just – night and day drastically different than um, even before kids and then before that, before recovery. So, um, yeah, I just feel very grateful for the journey. I'm glad you brought up the pregnancy because one of my questions was, how did you do pregnancy? And I wrote that question exactly like that because I'm like, how did you do that? Because – I, man, that freaks me out. And I think, I think a lot of dancers, it's got to freak out. Like Mm -hmm. whether you have an issue or not, like we're so used to ultimate control of our bodies. That's what we do. So whether you have a dysfunctional relationship with your body or not, our whole job is to control every aspect of every pinky finger of every muscle group of everything. So to have something hijack your whole system, and just be like, this is fine. Like, I don't know. Like, how does that happen? I mean, it's so like, funny. How- You're just like, so I definitely, so I was teaching at AMDA a lot. And I saw a couple other women go through their pregnancies teaching. Nicole Berger, um, she's uh, somebody I saw go through, well, one pregnancy on and teaching like up till the end so I was like oh my god so you're teaching but you're also pregnant like you're working 
And that was my experience. You know, again, everyone's different, but I did feel like, wow, I I remember I was teaching, especially with Layla, with my second, I literally had her the last week of classes, like week 15, that's a 15-week semester. And so I had my, I think there's finals on Friday and then Monday. I had her at like one o'clock. And so in AMDA, they don't let you have assistance. It's not like, you know, right. did, were you, you still weren't able yeah. to, they don't let you have an assistant. No. Yeah. And I was so you're out there all through the pandemic, changing. like on Zoom. So I have all these videos of me pregnant, like, you know, <laughs> teaching combinations. But it was funny because I could still, you know, and I I remember too, I was doing the show and I can't, um, Tice is his assistant at the time, Katie. Well, I can't remember her last name, but she was full pregnant and also had her baby during our run. And she was the assistant choreographer and like literally doing it full out. So I had seen other women and the possibility of like, you just listen to your body, right? So because some people can view pregnancy as like a sickness almost like, um, but that's the physical I think part. that's how I see it. I yeah. see it as like uh, the ultimate disability. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, it's not at all like, although it does qualify for like certain benefits and situations. For sure. And you'll, but- it's so interesting because though, you know, as a dancer, you're so aware of your body. So it's really incredible. Honestly, like, yes, there are certain things I was like, ooh, I'm not going to do that. And I remember, yeah, later on, like this little baby's pushing all your organs to the side. So breathing, that was the hardest thing was talking while I was teaching. Mm-hmm. Like the jumping jacks and stuff like that were fine. Like I also learned how to, you just take it easy. As a dancer, it's like we have all the tools because we know how to modify. We know how to like really use our plie and like, you know, so I remember too, my first pregnant, we went out to a show the night before and I was in labor like that next day. Um, I don't know if I wore heels or whatever, but you see these women. And of course I'm like trying to prove something too. So my second, <laughs> I was like not doing that as much. But my first, yeah, you know, and I think everyone's different. So you can't anticipate what you're going to feel. And I know some women that were so sick through their pregnancies. And Mm. I have so much, like, that is a whole different beast. Like, I don't, that was not my experience. Yes, I didn't, I remember talking to someone. I was like, I don't feel great. But I'm also, all I was thinking the whole time, honestly, Jillian, was I was like, but this is nothing compared to what I used to put myself through. Like, Mm the physical suffering like as when I wasn't eating enough or when I was when we're in rehearsals for things and we're exhausted and you got to just do it and get through it I remember that being far more difficult than when I knew how to care for myself and one thing about pregnancy is like especially with the first like you can take naps right like you (laughs) you just it's almost like oh you take care of yourself a little better because you know it's not just you anymore at least that was my experience too it was like yeah and we have so much where awareness of our bodies now on the other end of the disordered eating and that stuff one thing that came up for me was i started having acid reflux And like, I remember being frustrated late in pregnancy because I would eat a very small amount of food. Like I had to be careful with what I was eating because it would literally come up. And as someone Mm. who has struggled with bulimia their whole life, I literally was like, oh my God, am I going to have to start recounting days? But no, because like I wasn't, you know, I literally, there were times I would lay down and I'd be asleep. 
And an hour later, I would come up and it would just come out of my mouth. Like, mm. and not a lot. I, that sounds horrible. Like, these are things in pregnancy nobody talks about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like, going to sleep, waking up and vomiting. Not because you ate a lot, but because there was no room. And I had some acid reflux and it just didn't gel. And that wasn't, mm-hmm. that is a very different process than somebody throwing up their food because they want to look differently, Mm -hmm. right? Like, or they don't want to feel, you know, and there were certainly times where I was, you know, talking about sitting in discomfort. Like, it's not very comfortable to be eight, nine months pregnant at all. Um, Right. And so when people are like, it was amazing, the whole time you're like, "Uh, nothing. I remember talking to somebody and she was like, I feel amazing. I was like, wow. I don't know if I felt like amazing, like ever. You know what I mean? And I was like, you know, but I, the process of it, right? The experience is something that is pretty incredible, but there's a lot of discomfort. But again, mm-hmm. in recovery, like I said, as the answer, we have so much uh, training <laughs> yeah. for being discom- like uncomfortable. Right. And then also, right. you know, checking in, making sure I was taking care of myself, like all these things. And then the body stuff. It was a lot of recognizing thoughts and, you know, you're growing out of different clothes and, you know, but also knowing it was temporary and what do I feel comfortable in and I'm creating life and you get these different mantras in your head because I also know that, you know what, I have the motivation to do what I need to do to feel the way I want to feel post when my life and my body are not about this creation And I was also, it's good to be physical. I remember hiking at the very end too. Like I was, Mm -hmm. you know, trying, you want to move your body. Like I tried to listen to my body and see what it needed. And anyway, yeah. I'm glad you talked about temporary because I noticed for myself when I'm in an uncomfortable feeling or situation, one of my, I would say, I don't know if it's a character flaw or if it's like a dis-ease flaw. Well, you know, one of those things is that I think I'm going to be here forever. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it so intolerable to me is that I, it doesn't matter how many times I've gotten through a feeling or a situation I'm uncomfortable in. I constantly am like, have to remind myself that this too will will change. Pass, this yeah. too will pass, mm-hmm. you know, like, because in those moments, I'm like, I'm going to feel like this forever. There's no way out. I can't escape it. And that's just not true. And I, I have learned through therapy because I see outside help as well as, mm-hmm. you know, being in the rooms is that when I am, first of all, I have to decipher the difference between being uncomfortable and unsafe because I read a lot of situations as unsafe and they're not, they're just uncomfortable. So that's the first thing I have to do. And then very few things, very few circumstances I'm in, in my life, am I unsafe? Uh, like 98% of them, I'm just uncomfortable. And for some reason, that stat flips for me and I'm constantly in a state of I'm unsafe, which is not true. I'm uncomfortable. Then from there, I have to look at it and be like, this is going to be over in an hour. If I'm in a situation like a job, I'm uncomfortable or I want to be home, you're going to be here for an hour. You can get through an hour. It's only an hour. Or I've eaten too much or I feel discomfort. Like this will pass probably 10 minutes. Like you're going to be fine. Or, you know, whatever those, the feelings. And sometimes my feelings last for a while because I struggle with depression and anxiety. And sometimes it's at a low level or a high level for a while. And I really have to wait it out. Um, but it does pass. Um, it's just if I'm willing to be patient enough with it. So I'm glad you talked about that because I immediately when I hear that, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, I, I constantly can't imagine that I'm not going to feel this way forever. It's not, everything's not permanent, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm glad you said that. I have two last questions for you. One of the, okay, the second to the last, 
Uh, and you've touched on this a bit, but how do you stay absent or sober from relapsing into old behaviors? Is there anything that you want to add? I know you've talked about being in the rooms and the connection and, you know, specifically some of your early um, and maybe things you still do as far as OA and how you navigate that. Is there anything else you want to talk about like day to day now, how you kind of check in or stay abstinent or sober from relapsing into old behaviors? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question and one that I'm so curious for so to listen to so many people's answers because I think what's so beautiful about, and again, it's like we both have experience with 12-step. That's not the only way to be in recovery, but I think what's so incredible about it is it's always there. So for example, like before Christmas, I forget, it was like a couple weeks before. And for me, kind of what starts to happen is I feel wound so tight. Um, Something in recovery for me that is a challenge, and especially as a mom, is trying to uh, find space and room to relax. (laughs) Just relax, right? So what does that look like? I mean, obviously, and have fun. Um, because I think we get, and this is not unique, this is for a lot of people who are motivated and doing a lot of things and working and blah, 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 all these things. It's always like, what's next? The next task, right? And I know like, yes, we watch shows at the end of the day on the couch. That's, I love it so much. It's like my favorite thing to do. But like what kind of, I miss like before kids, right? Like we would, I would hang out. I'm definitely a, I'm an extrovert. Like I definitely get energy from connecting with my friends, like having a night together where we're talking about like feelings and experiences and crying and laughing. Like that's my favorite thing. And I come home like energized. Like I feel like, oh, like getting it out. That's for me, um, something I love, like connecting with, seeing friends, that's important to me. Um, and so what I realize in in recovery, if I'm not doing the things, those different things that are different for everybody. So some people are introverts, like they need their alone time, right? We know like recovery, taking care of your, your mental state, your physical state, your emotional state, your spiritual state, right? So all of these things, it's like it's a multi-pronged approach. And I think especially at the beginning, it needs to be that for sure. Um, and then throughout, it's like I have to continuously check myself. Um, and, but I, but that's how it's playing out for me now is I just feel wound tightly and I have a short fuse and mostly with my four-year-old, <laughs> my one-year-old, <laughs> but mostly with a four-year-old because they're at, she's at a stage like – yeah, kids are so weird and they really push your buttons in new ways. And like there's this, there's like this, this side of me that I'm getting to know that I don't like at all. Um, it's my mom's voice and it's coming out. Like there's just things that are coming out. And so my job as a sober woman when things come up is to look at them, is like to lead with that curiosity, right? Like to be like, oh, wow, what is this? And what do I need? What can I learn from this? And what do I need right now? So for me, what that looks like oftentimes is calling my sponsor and crying, um, leaving messages and then committing to a meeting and showing up to a meeting. It means asking for help from my husband to watch the girls so I can go for a run. Um uh yeah like the other part of it is I'm in school and I love my schoolwork and um but I get stressed and so that stress and I'm still teaching and oftentimes like my time management like I'm still I'm working on these things and 
what what happens with that stress in my body and in my reactions to people and in my relationships. And so that's where I'm at of um, that's what it looks like for me now. So recovery in there means managing that and managing my um, stress. And it's different than it was because I used to be able to go to yoga every day. I used to da I used to like be mm-hmm. doing more creative things. Like it looked different. And I think as it's going to continuously look different through the years of how to manage my emotional sobriety. Um, and then, yeah, the commitment to uh, continuously putting my sobriety first, showing up for myself. A big thing for me uh, is asking for what I might need and not being a martyr because that's so easy for me is to be like, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's fine. And then just like mm-hmm. be so resentful to everybody mm-hmm. because of that. Um and taking on too much and then hating everyone and being like, mm-hmm. why am I like, and then wanting to quit and run away. Like these are big things for me. And if I can't do it well, I don't want to do it at all. And so I have a phrase written up here, which is good enough. And that's from my therapist. Um, just like stop. Like what am I trying to do? Like just good enough. My schoolwork, it's just got to be good enough. Like Everything like we try to just like I always joke that like every paper I write and this was when I was younger, too, is like I want to change the world with this or every audition. I want to change the world. You're like, stop it. Like you're not changing anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are my, you know, my personal sort of touch points. So recovery for me is just knowing it's always there and that every day is like a new opportunity to make sure that I'm reaching out and uh and doing what I need in that capacity. And then here's the other part of it, being of service, um, yes. <laughs> which like falls on the back burner right now for me. But I did have the honor of getting to sponsor a woman uh, last year uh, for a year and a half. We went through all 12 steps together. We spoke every week. She, We had a lot of similarities. A friend of a friend, the way this program works, when you're open about your sobriety, mm-hmm. often – you know, that's the beauty of this, I think. And you're able to pass on that gift. And she's incredible. I love her so much. We've become so close through FaceTime. And um, yeah, so anytime I can to be able to pass that on is good too. So yeah. Yes. Um, and I'll do a quick plug because um, as I'm interviewing people, I'm putting, you know, ways to usually contact them because a majority of the people I'm interviewing are very open to outreach private messages, stuff like that. So if anyone's listening um, or as people listen, like I'm always hit me up in DMs. There's many ways to get a hold of me. And I'll sure I'll, if you approve it, I can put a way to contact you as well um, that you're cool with. Um, I love that you talked about good enough. Um, I like to talk about or tell myself, you know, instead of aiming for perfection, aim for excellence because I know I can do excellence. If you have striven your whole life, if you've strived your whole life for perfection, you've always been excellent, but it's never been good enough for you because you've been trying to get to perfection, which doesn't even exist. So there's that one. And then I also sometimes like to say, I want to set the bar so low I could step over it. Because then as I just step over that low bar, I can have a celebration for myself. It didn't take a ton of effort. And I can pat myself on the back like, oh, I did it. And it was not hard at all. So I like to talk about setting low bars also so that you can actually do that and it feels like a celebration. Yes, I love that. Last question. I know in the programs, um, we don't give advice. Sometimes we give suggestion. 
Do you have any suggestion for people who might be suffering right now? Well, it's so funny because it's like, I feel like this whole time I'm just giving advice. I'm like, this is what worked for me. But, um, but see, no, you said you did the for me. That's right. how you did. That's sharing you, my as long experience. As you say, yes, my experience for me. Uh, this is uh, how, what my experience was versus, you know what you should do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what your problem is? <laughs> I know. I know. Nobody wants to hear that. Never. I know, but it doesn't stop me from saying it to yeah. people all the time. I'm in a program for that, though, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. The, the graduate program, mm -hmm. for those of you who are in the room, so you know what that program is. Okay, so do you have any suggestions for people who are suffering right now? Oh, gosh. Um. Yeah, I um, I mean, I always just say this sounds like such a it's such a cliche, but you are so not alone, you know. So so if you're listening to this because you're curious or you're thinking that you might have or you know you have a problem, but you don't see another way out or through or any of that, right? Um, it takes a lot, I feel like, for people to get to the place where they're willing to commit to some kind of change. There's so much fear surrounding taking on something like that because it's very it's really fucking scary um sorry i don't know swear but um no, i've already sworn it's all okay good. great 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 um but yeah i think you're not alone and doing you know one thing we talk about in program is um is doing the opposite action uh is that how we say it contrary contrary, contrary action contrary. yep and so often, right, like you just want to be by yourself. Uh, you want to push people away, all of those things to do the opposite, to reach out, to write, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you talked about DMs like on Instagram. And for sure, if if you wanted to write me, that's a great way. Cat Tokars Dyson underneath with underscores, cat underscore Tokars underscore Dyson. And just writing a little DM, right, to, to one of us and saying, hey, I'm really struggling. Um, do you have a minute to chat or blah, 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 or whatever. Um, just reaching out. That's such a huge thing because it just – you're putting out that energy that you want something a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the other thing that I love is, like, you look for what you want in people. So surrounding yourself with people that you – that are healthy, that are doing things that you – you know, um, that you respect, you know, a big thing for me that we didn't talk about at all is like integrity, um, and learning how to be somebody that my words match my, my actions match my thoughts, right? Well, maybe not my thoughts, my thoughts can be what they are, but, um, mostly my words matching my actions in the world. Um, cause I had a really difficult time with that. I mean, I had a really – I would just be who I was thought I was supposed to be. And and that can start to really, really um, grate your soul. <laughs> and I know that's mm -hmm. not a unique thing at, at all. So, you know, trying to be play this role or be a certain way and it maybe not is really who you are. You're not being sort of authentic with who you are. And mm -hmm. I'm still figuring out what that is for me. And, you know, so mm -hmm. I guess that you're not alone, that I'm here. Jillian's here, um, and that there's so there are resources, there is help to live a life that is less uh, painful. So, mm -hmm. and I know that for me, I'm I'm definitely proof of that. Um, yeah, that's a great pitch. That's a great pitch, Cat. Thank you so 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 much for lending your time. 
um, which is very valuable. You're a very busy lady. I'm so, so glad you were able to sit down. This episode is like absolute gold. And um, I think wherever anybody's at in their life period, whether you have an issue or not, I think this is super, super uh, just invaluable. So thank you for coming today and doing this. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. What an honor. Such a gift. All of this is a gift. I can't thank Kat enough for her honesty and her resilience. So much of her experience resonates with me, and I'm so grateful she was willing to share it on Grey Maybe. I wonder, how would Kat and I have related to each other if we had met back before either of us had any recovery? Would we have recognized each other's behavior? Or would we have been so good at secret keeping and denial we could have hit it? Would we have liked each other then, like we do now? Or would we have repelled one another because we were so alike and suffering so similarly? Could we have connected authentically at all back then, given what our energy was so intensely focused on? How many people over the last 20 years have I walked amongst who were walking the same journey? Our diseases keeping us separate and isolated. I hope you found something that resonated in my conversation with Kat today. If you're listening to this episode and you're realizing that you're more like Kat and I than not, welcome. And I hope this helps you take a step in the direction of recovery. If you haven't already, you're not alone. Just a reminder for anyone who needs to hear it. You don't need to wait until you're sick enough to get help. In fact, you don't have to be sick at all. Just a desire to feel a little better. If you're listening and right now you're struggling with an eating disorder, disordered eating, or other behaviors, welcome. Know that whatever you're feeling, there are those among us that have probably felt it too. You're not alone. If you're listening because you have someone you love in your life that is suffering or is in recovery for an eating disorder, welcome. You are also not alone. Even having an eating disorder myself, I have not reacted the best I could to others who were struggling before my own recovery. I've attached the do's and don'ts of how to deal with someone suffering in the show notes, as well as how to contact Kat and myself and various links for help and recovery, when and if you're ready. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you were able to find something relatable in today's episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this is also a social experiment to see if in telling my story, I can embolden listeners to share their stories. If you'd like me to read your recovery story on this topic, anonymous or otherwise, on the podcast, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com, G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this Gray Maybe podcast happen. Producer and editor, Roderick Barge. Cover photo by Jose Perez. Music licensed by Pixabay. Special counsel, Jada Ellingham and Roderick Barge. Special shout out to supporter, Patty Olgan. If you'd like to support this podcast, please rate, share, comment, and subscribe. Until next time, bye for now.